Recent disruptions have stretched supply chains all over the world. In some cases, supply chains have been broken in their weak places and have needed to be repaired. But there will always be unexpected events and outcomes. What helps are predictive models that can aid in decision-making. Dr. Madhav Durba, the VP of Supply Chain Strategy at Coupa Software, suggests simulations can help companies make smart decisions that will lead to great heights. Think about us as a flight simulator for supply chain. You take a fighter jet pilot and you don't put him or her in the plane all the time in the beginning and have them start flying, right? You put them through some simulation exercises. So just like that, these flight simulators exist. What we do is help build what we refer to as the digital twin of the physical supply chain. So think of that as the digital model with all the interconnections between what are my sources of supply, which plants, production facilities are they feeding to. From those production facilities, which distribution centers can receive the shipment and which DC scatter which customers. So we build a digital model with all those interconnections. And then what you do is you start feeding the forecast to set the drumbeat for that digital twin. Just like for individual people, companies also must accept the inevitability that even the best plans will be impacted by events beyond one's control. But this is not a reason for despair. Instead, it's an opportunity for better strategy that includes even more flexibility. This is certainly true for companies looking to strengthen their supply chains. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Manav explains how companies can increase their supply chain efficiency, sustainability, and resiliency. He discusses how companies need to rethink their supply chain relationship from one individual supplier to what he calls a multi-tiered network. Furthermore, he made the point that companies must also work with governments to support their supply chain. Madhav also shared how he transitioned from the engineering world to focus on supply chain strategy. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, we have a special guest, the VP of Supply Chain Strategy at Coupa, Madhav Durba. Madhav, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. Right out the gate, we always ask this to all of our guests. But in case anyone doesn't know, I know what Coupa is. It's a public traded company, big time company. But in case anyone out there doesn't know, what is Coupa and what does it do? Coupa is the market leader in business spend management software. So we have one mission as a company, right? To maximize the value that any company gets out of every dollar that they spend. So that's what we do. If you think about it, the perfect analogy would be, if you think about Salesforce, right? What they're doing on the customer facing side, enhancing the value of customer relations through every channel and every point of contact. We do that on the buy side, on the supplier side and on the spend side of the uh, of organizations. That's what we do. Yeah, listen, there's no doubt that what you guys do is critically important for anyone who's ever run or operated a business. You 100% recognize vendors, contracts, payments, invoices. This is a great example, actually. We just saw a current event article where this guy, now he's going to jail now, of course he should, but he's been sending invoices to Facebook, yeah. just random invoices and kept getting paid. He made millions of dollars doing this. Well, he's going to go to jail. I hope it was worth it. But Coupa does help keep all these things in line. Now, when I think I'm like many other people who had a 
maybe a premonition or a thought in their head that Coupa was just for software spend, but it's for all types of spend. Is that accurate? Like anything you buy as a business that you want to manage, Coupa can manage for you. Is that right? Absolutely. It's all forms of spend. It's all the way from what we refer to as indirect materials, right? Your office supplies and so on and so forth, like pens and pencils and little things that you need to keep your business running to direct materials, which is, you know, the components that go into the products that you make or services that you need. For example, you want to move product in the marketplace. You need shipping services, for example, right? Yeah. So how do you engage different uh, carriers? bid out for them and then down select carriers and so on and so forth. So it's all forms of spend. So give us an idea of your role specifically, because I think a lot of our listeners, they're in technology, but they might not fully understand supply chains. You're the VP of supply chain strategy. What does that mean? What are you specifically focused and working on for Coupa as well as the customers? Sure. So my team focuses especially on the supply chain offerings of, uh, from Coupa software. So if you think about business spend management as a category, right? A lot of the spend for a lot of companies are locked up. It is locked up in their supply chain. So things like procuring raw materials, making product and the manufacturing costs that you incur as part of the process, and then moving the product into the marketplace, right? There are warehousing costs, there are transportation costs. You incur taxes and tariffs as part of that process, right? Mm. So all that is spent, if you think about it. So what my team focuses on is understanding the needs of our customers and understanding the market needs, and then defining our go-to-market strategy in terms of what areas do we want to play in and what solutions we bring to bear and take to market. So that's what my team focuses on. So let's do an example, because I think that's a better way for all of our audience to understand. So Number one, it sounds like all of your customers, I mean, it makes total sense in supply chain. Typically, they're going to be selling physical goods. So let's say we are a microphone company. I'm sitting in front of a microphone. You currently have a microphone. Let's imagine we're a microphone company. I need to order, like you said, raw materials for all my component parts. I need to get them to my manufacturing facility. Tell me what Coupa is doing along the way, because that part I understand. Like I got to get my raw materials. I got to get it manufactured, assembled. From there, I got to get it packaged and shipped to wherever it needs to go. What is Coupa helping its customers do? Because it's not actually shipping them. So now that I have used or am using a product like Coupa, what will I be able to recognize, spot, prevent, enable? Give us an idea like the before and after of what this is. So the before you think about, you talked about microphones as an example, right? It's got multiple components that go into it, like semiconductor chips maybe in there. Yeah. And then there are some mechanical parts on and so forth. So one thing is understanding my overall business objective. And then you would set certain objectives and goals saying that this is the cost I want to have within my supply chain. Now, I want to design a supply chain based on those parameters and objectives that I established. So how many suppliers do I need to have? How many manufacturing facilities do I need to have? What kind of capacities do I need to build in those manufacturing facilities? How many distribution centers do I need to have, right? Each of these decisions come with a cost associated with that. So how do I best manage that cost? The second factor to that is, if you think about the focus on sustainability right now, you know, a lot of companies are working towards reducing their carbon footprint and their scope one emissions, scope three emissions, and so on and so forth. 
one thing we do help companies do is help model their carbon footprint and explicitly optimize for that carbon footprint to say that I want to reduce my carbon emissions by say 33%. What levers can I push to make that happen? So it's really helping design supply chains for sustainability, for profitability, last but not the least, resiliency as well, right? Because some what you want to do is you want to build optionality in your supply chain, options in terms of different modes of transportation, options in terms of sources of supply. Each of these options come with additional costs. So how do you balance all these objectives together is something that we do. That's a great example. And you know, last year, we as a society saw critical supply chains getting pushed to the limit. We saw and heard about shortages of simple common products like toilet paper, variety of reasons why these things happen. We also heard like high-end products. What we heard about last year at holidays, like Peloton, right? They weren't able to fulfill their orders because they couldn't make the bikes. They, whatever happened in their supply chain, they couldn't get the parts really. So right now what's happening with automotives, right? We have a massive chip shortage, which is now causing automotives to have a harder time manufacturing cars, which is causing a supply chain choke point on new cars, which of course is increasing the price of used cars. So used cars prices are going through the roof. When you use a product like Coupa, do you guys study macroeconomics so that you can help program the formulas inside of Coupa so that it can better forecast? Because I'm imagining if I use a, you know, if I'm using a business spend management tool and I'm focusing specifically on supply chain, I think it would be immensely powerful to know that, hey, shortages are emerging in chips. These are the suppliers that are getting hit with the shortages. I don't know if it starts forecasting like my lead times and my turn times. It starts forecasting my potential material costs so that I can make a decision to say, hey, I need to order more chips now to prevent this, or I'm just going to go with my standard order. Like every month, I'm going to order this much. Give us an idea of like that process because I can see how immensely powerful this is, but that would also mean like this product has to understand macroeconomics so that it could bring us the light. Sure. So it all starts with, to your point, it all starts with forecasting, right? Forecasting and preparing for a range of possibilities. So we do gather a lot of external data and we house about 600,000 uh, different, uh, what we refer to as time series, right? Different types of macroeconomic data, such as consumer price indices, the GDP, housing starts, uh, weather-related data, so on and so forth, right? So each of these data elements have an implication on what a company can sell into future. We do apply some machine learning techniques to come up with forecasts. So that is one type of data. The second type of data that we house is what we refer to as the community data. So if you think about Coupa's community, we have over 2,000 customers and over 7 million suppliers with about $2.9 trillion worth of spend that flows through our platform. So through rights of usage agreement with our customers, what we do is we come up with these indices, what we refer to as uh, community insights, for lack of better words, right? We strongly believe that None of us is as smart as all of us, right? So when you tap into that community intelligence, there are a lot of insights that you can gather. So examples could be, in fact, we published something called a business spend index in terms of how business spend is trending by different industry verticals as an example. So using that, we get some leading indicators, even looking at our business spend index, for example, compared to previous year, Q3 of 2020 and now, it's about 17% more. 
So 17% more spend in supply chain. In business overall, in business spend overall. Okay. Of which supply chain is a part of. We tap into indicators like that. Also, when you look at community intelligence data, like I mentioned before, a lot of our customers use us for transportation sourcing, for example. So at any point in time, we can launch sourcing events into the market and get the most recent market rates, mm. as well as get indicators in terms of the lead times as well. We use that to model and make projections into what it means into future. Right. So it all starts with your point. It all starts with understanding data that is not just sitting internally, but tapping into these external sources of data and being able to make these projections, if you will. That becomes the starting point. And then I can walk you through the rest of the steps as well. Oh, uh, yeah. No, please do. So, you know, you have it starts with data. And then how do you make reliable recommendations really i guess that or do you leave you leave the customers up to recommending because i used to joke with all my friends like you know there's so much data in the world but there's certain things that are unpredictable therefore tools can't predict everything and my example was like for example the stock market there's probably more historical data than any in than in any other field yet there is no tool that will tell you to buy or sell something you know what i mean they none of them want to be in charge of that none of them want to have that responsibility to be in charge you know, the biggest things people want out of AI intelligence software, enterprise software, is they want assistance in making mission critical decisions. Because it's one thing to have the data, that's nice, but it, obviously data can be interpreted. So like a simple thing that someone has to always think about with supply chain is, you know, do I order more today or do I order the same or order less? So it's more, same, less. And that decision goes for everything. Do I do more of it, less of it, or the same amount of it? Everything along with supply chain, like more shipping, less, <laughs> you know, keep it the same. How does the tool or how do you guys think about that next evolution of helping people make better decisions using this data? Because I agree, data is nice, but, you know, decision treeing and insights, that's where utility really is useful. So think about us as a flight simulator for supply chain, for lack of better words. You take a fighter jet pilot and you don't put him or her in the plane all the time or in the beginning and have them start flying, right? You put them through some simulation exercises. Just like that, these flight simulators exist, what we do is help build what we refer to as the digital twin of the physical supply chain. Think of that as the digital model with all the interconnections between what are my sources of supply, which plants, production facilities are they feeding to? From those production facilities, which distribution centers can receive the shipment? and which DC scatter which customers. We build a digital model with all those interconnections. And then what you do is you start feeding the forecast to set the drumbeat for that digital twin. Now, we don't live in a deterministic world. You alluded to stock market, right? If I can predict the future tomorrow, <laughs> I, I could be doing anything right now. Yeah. Instead, what we focus on is helping companies come up with a range of possibilities and scenarios. And based on those range of possibilities and scenarios, we work through this digital twin, transmit that signal through various links within the digital twin and help make decisions around how much do I need to produce and what is my margin of error around that? How much do I need to stock in various distribution centers? How much product do I need to move into the market and how much raw materials do I need to bring in? And accordingly, how many trucks do I need mm -hmm. or how much ocean container capacity do I need, right? So helping come up with all these sort of scenarios 
and help drive those decisions. That's what we specialize in. That makes perfect sense. And I totally get it. Yeah, it's very difficult to predict things like, you know, what's happening in the ports across the world. But we'll say specifically the United States. I read an article about how there's more than 50 ships alone waiting to dock. Oh, yeah. Off of one port in San Francisco. And this pattern repeats itself from New York, Los Angeles. Every major port in the United States is backed up with ships. Sure. So there's certain things that software doesn't necessarily predict. I completely understand the giving good information to make better decisions. That's, that's certainly something that's very useful. Yeah, it doesn't, to your point, right? It's not that, I mean, we were not sitting there predicting that there is going to be a COVID-19 spike. That's right. However, <laughs> what the software can do is, as the information emerges, you can tap into newer sources of data. For example, I'll give you one example. When COVID happened, one of the soft drink companies that we were working with, one of the beverage companies we were working with, what happened was their demand pattern started shifting because a lot of us were locked down at home and the types of products that we consume, the product mix that we consume started changing significantly. Like I would get a single serve can and consume from a vending machine when I'm going out and about. However, when I'm consuming from home, the kind of products that I consume are going to be very different. I may get a six pack or 12 pack, or I may get a two liter bottle, so on and so forth, right? How do you get that signal? Some of the work we did was tapping into Google mobility indices. For example, Google publishes these mobility indices on how population is moving from homes to office spaces or homes to entertainment establishments or homes to subway stations, for example, right? When you tap into those trends and start seeing that people's mobility has come down, then you can map it up to say that these are the types of product portfolio that sell better. Mm. You brought up the example of Peloton. Why did Peloton sales spike? Because a lot of people were sitting at home. (laughs) Yeah, the home fitness category overall went crazy. It wasn't just Peloton. Every company I know of. So we met with some people that work or manufacture for the barbells for different fitness companies. And they said they had never been busier. Their factories were pressing barbells 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop. And it had never done that before. Exactly. So how do you get those insights? I mean, when, when those tipping points happen, you can start tapping into more of the near-term data and start drawing some correlative analysis. Say that this is how I see the patterns shifting. So at least, even if you don't catch that first wave, you can catch the next waves that follow. That's how I like to think about it. So how did you get into supply chain? Because it looks like you went to school for chemical engineering, which of course is different than what you ended up doing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Good question. Uh, I'll try to make it concise. When I first started my PhD program, all I wanted to do was to become a professor in a university teaching chemical engineering, right? But somewhere along the line, it was the 90s, if you think about it, the tech was starting to take off. And somehow I got hooked on to technology literature, reading about Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and the, the tech icons. I said, oh, this is a cool industry to be in. And an opportunity presented itself where I could get into a supply chain tech company. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know much about tech. I didn't know much about supply chain. (laughs) All I had to convince somebody was that they could take a chance on and uh, rest as they say is history. You just convince somebody you're just smart enough. You're like, hey man, 
I don't know anything about this today, but I know I can learn it. That's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So you got started working in the transportation global supply chain business. What were you doing, right? Um, what was your first, I guess, taste? What was your first role in this industry? I was doing a lot of consulting. So I was rotating between different companies. Very first exposure was actually to semiconductor industry. And then I moved into food and beverage. So what happened was as I progressed in my career, I started getting exposed to multiple industries and also played a variety of roles. I played roles in customer support, consulting, product management, pre-sales, variety of functions, right? So that gave me a broad exposure to how the supply chain works in general and in specific, the supply chain tech industry as well. So, you know, being 23 years, I wouldn't change a thing in terms of where where I started. (laughs) There you go, man. There's no question. It's a complex problem. And it's one of those things where the problem is so hard to solve. Everyone continues to try to solve it. Like we've had different guests on IT Visionaries as well as the other mission shows talk about supply chain. It's one of the biggest costs. Of course, it's one of the biggest costs for any business. And they're always trying to manage it better, trying to get better handles on and get better. So there's a never ending. It's basically never done. So you picked a good industry to go into because it's never, it's never going to be done. It's only going to get more complicated. So that's very good. You know, you were part of a company called Lamasoft that w- worked in in the same industry. You mentioned earlier, you got acquired by Coupa. Give us an idea of what your role is today as VP of supply chain strategy. Do you mostly sit on like the product team? Are you more on the customer side team? Like what is, where does your role straddle? Because I'm assuming you meet a lot with customers and what their requirements are and helping develop the product to meet those requirements. But I don't want to make assumptions. Tell us where it is you sit in your role and what do you principally do? Yeah, my, my role is I sit at the intersection of our product marketing and uh, our customer facing functions, right? So it's a very unique space that uh, my team sits in. So in terms of the type of engagements we do, of course, I do get in front of our customers, talk to them quite a lot in terms of A, understanding and baselining what their challenges are, and then B, to see how Coupa can help given what they go through. Internally, what I do is I work very closely with our product team as well in terms of sharing what we see from a market standpoint and what we see as the market uh, requirements. And then we have a very strong product management team and very strong uh, software engineering team that does a lot of the R&D and development work and so on and so forth. That's where I sit within the organization. I got to ask you, what are some of the things you're seeing emerging as requirements today? Because, you know, that's the one of the biggest things is solving big problems. That's what big software companies try to do. That's how you guys keep improving. Give me an idea. What are some of the major problems that companies are asking for from Coupa? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Um, I'd be curious to hear what you're seeing in the marketplace. Sure. I would uh, list out three things, right? One is most companies I talk to right now, their top of mind for them is resiliency and business continuity planning. How do I make sure when the next disruption happens? I said when, not if, right? Yeah, it's definitely when, (laughs) when it happens. So when the next disruption happens, how am I better prepared for that? That's number one. Number two is increasingly organizations are recognizing the need for sustainability and diversity, especially with a politically charged environment that we went through over the last year and a half or so, right? Yeah. How do I build sustainability? How do I build sustainable supply chains? 
right? But number three is nobody is sitting there writing blank checks either, right? To do all this. <laughs> you have to find the value on locks, right? You have to find the cost savings. How do I make sure that I spot those opportunities that can unlock significant value in terms of my supply chain? If I were to think, put it as like a three-pronged strategy, it's resiliency, sustainability, and profitability. How do I manage and how do I balance these three objectives? It's turning out to be a very, very key requirement. And then, of course, speed to decisions. It's not that I have a ton of time. When the next disruption strikes, I should be able to respond quickly and act, but also design my supply chain so that I'm in a position to better withstand when the next disruption strikes. I'd love to bring this to let's say a modern problem, like a current problem today, let's go back to that semi can or that chip shortage, right? Let's imagine yeah. I'm a car maker. Give me an idea of what they're looking to accomplish because they're all short on chips, right? So I'm going to guess and then you tell me and correct me, right? So my thought process is first thing they want to know is, well, how many people make this chip, right? Yeah. Who owns this chip? Can another version be made? Can someone else make it? Why is my supplier running low on chips? Maybe it's actually like, I don't know, I'm going to make up a product, like the glue, because I know the chips are glued to like motherboards. Like we're short on glue. Like they probably look at all the component pieces and try to figure out where can they build redundancies or like you said, resiliency. So I guess that usually means a second supplier. They probably are looking for investment advice and how much more should they plan for? Like is it 50% more, 30% more? How much more should I invest so that when, like you said, when the next problem comes in chips, my manufacturing continues. I don't want to stop, right? The automotive industry, I've read an article about how much money they are losing because they can't oh, yeah. get cars out the door. It's oh, a yeah. phenomenal number. I saw like overhead shots of uh, some of the storage lots, absolutely full of new cars. And they said, it's literally, they're missing one piece, <laughs> which is essential because most cars are computers now. It's like, it doesn't have, it's like ECM. It's like, oh, well, this car's useless without it. <laughs> Is that kind of like what people are looking to do when you say they're looking to build resiliency? It's like, how do I get parts? How do I get more of the parts? How do I invest in more parts? Is that what you're talking about? It's part of what you said exactly, right? So by the way, I was reading uh, this number. It's about $210 billion. That's how much revenue is going to be impacted in 2021 in global automotive industry. $210 billion. $210 billion. So, That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So, so now, if you think about the resiliency, right, and how these companies think about it, oftentimes, these chip suppliers are not directly selling to the automotive manufacturers, right? They're mm. selling to their tier one suppliers or their tier two suppliers, oftentimes hidden beyond the plain sight within multiple tiers of their network. So really, one thing that is going on is these companies are mapping out their network, not just their immediate suppliers, but let me traverse up the supply chain. Because oftentimes, to your point, it's the tiny component that brings your production to standstill. Yeah. Right? And if the tiny component is stuck in my tier two or tier three, how do I gain visibility to that? It actually happened. If you look at 2011, I think it is, when the tsunami hit and yeah. lots of disruptions in Japan, and at the time itself, automotive companies realized that I need to think multi-tier network as opposed to my immediate supplier, right? So it starts with understanding what are those single points of failure in my multi-tier network, 
then how do I build resiliency around that? How do I build optionality? In certain cases, automotive companies are now engaging directly with semiconductor suppliers so that they can go obtain chips on behalf of their suppliers, even though that automotive company is not consuming that chip directly in its own production facility, it's now securing that capacity on behalf of its own suppliers. Because you got the size and scale, so you can go get to the front of the queue, right? When the disruption strikes. So that is one. Then the second thing is also working with governments very actively. If you look at uh, President Biden signed the American Supply Chain Resilience Act, right? Back in February, he signed the executive order. One of the big components of that is semiconductor chips. And how do we reduce dependency on semiconductor chips? If you think about 1990, US had about 37% of the chip manufacturing capacity in the world. Fast forward, now we are about 11%. Yeah. That's a significant erosion, right? Yeah. This is the first bill of its type that I've seen. But I think I can see that what the pandemic really opened people's eyes to was how fragile we really are. Yes, globalization is great in that it allows us to get the best products and services at the lowest cost possible. That's typically the the benefit of globalization. But the problem is, is like you're under the assumption that it can make it from A to B, from country A to country B. And what we found out when the pandemic went down is that's not necessarily true. We learned the really, really hard way that our supply chain is actually very fragile if you cannot manufacture inside your own country. And even if you could, it still might have some fragility but it would have less than what we're seeing today, which is oh, yeah. like we said, all these boats, all these boats are just sitting offshore. No one can get these, no one can get these boats stateside. So all the goods that people are depending on there can't get access to them. Well, who knows what's going to happen? Exactly. And it's not just related to one single industry, right? If you look across industries, you see this problem as well. If you look at pharmaceutical industry, yeah. look at generic drugs, right? A lot of the active pharma ingredient and key starting materials, a lot of that supply is concentrated in China and India. That's a very high level of dependency. So can we completely get to regionalize supply chains? I don't think so, partly because of the natural resources. For example, if you look at electrification of cars, yeah, you need lithium deposits and so on and so forth, right? So for the battery supply chain, for example. Yeah. I don't think we get to that state where every country for itself and every country has got regionalized supply chains, but I think the pendulum will swing to a degree where different pockets of the world invest to build more redundancies in their supply chains and local sources of supply, closer sources of supply. Before you go, I want to ask you one more question about, you know, the on the business side. So you understand these problems. How do you, how does the Coupa team, how do you guys envision like solving these problems? Like what is your process for saying, hey, this is what we're going to implement on the product side? And yeah, of course, I get it. You can't reveal your roadmap, but give me an idea of like the methodology that you put into play to say like, hey, this is the problem. We as a team need to solve for this in order to solve that problem. How does Coupa determine where to invest its engineering resources to solving these problems? How do you guys do it? Sure. So the first thing is acknowledging that there is all this complexity in the world around us, right? And then put ourselves in the shoes of the users of these capabilities and these systems. They don't have the time in the day to go digging for answers. They can't keep finding those needles in haystack. So instead, what we need to do is to make the decision point as simple as possible for our users 
and surface those decisions through some prescriptive insights, right? So behind the scenes, we are investing a lot in our algorithmic intelligence and machine learning, AI, and all that good stuff, parsing through a number of possibilities that users have to encounter, and then being able to surface them in the form of prescriptive insights at the right time that the user needs to make certain decisions, right? So it all starts with making sure that we get into the shoes of our users and live their world and understand the challenges they go through. That's what drives it. There you go. Well, Madhav, man, it was a real pleasure having you today on IT Visionaries, sharing some of the things that you've learned, things that you're implementing, and kind of sharing your perspective on what's happening around the world, because we're all impacted by it. We just don't know. Well, I think a lot of us know, because food prices are gone up a lot. Anyone who's feeding <laughs> kids knows right now that things have changed. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Madhav, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work, so our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? I am. All right. We saw that you went to the University of Florida. That's right. Are you a college football fan? I was. <laughs> it was religion when I went to school there, but somewhere along the line, uh, I don't know. I don't follow the college football as much anymore now. Listen, I went to University of Florida as well. So, oh, really? hey, listen, you're a fellow Gator with me. We, listen. It's okay that you don't love the football team. That's okay. Listen, it's a great school. Now, at the University of Florida, there's a unique characteristic. There's Lake Alice, which is in the middle school. And most people do not know that there are live alligators at all times in this giant lake. Did you ever run across living alligators while at school? I ran into one right in the parking lot <laughs> next to my chemical engineering department. <laughs> so that's it. That was not such an unusual sight, at least when I was there in school. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. When I tell people this, they're like, they're blown away. It's like, what do you mean you just run into alligators? Oh, no, you just, they just crawl out of the water every now and then. They're right there. <laughs> See, yeah, so right Madhav says, that's exactly what happens. You've written a book about supply chain called Supply Chain for Dummies. What made you do that? Oh, it was a while ago. It was, gosh, you know, it was like seven or eight years ago when I was back at uh, JDA now called Blue Yonder. And uh, we recognize this need that there is this increasing interest in supply chain space overall. And uh, we thought it would be cool to just dumb it down and uh, just talk about supply chain in layman's terms and did that. Do you think you're going to write another book? Maybe at some point in time in future, but uh, I do continue to write. I do continue to publish more of articles and bylines. and. Oh, yeah. We read a bunch of them. Things like that. <laughs> you know, on LinkedIn... Also, it shows that you are, it looks like you're quite avid consumer of Coursera. I am. I'll let you speak to it, but you know, some of the topics we wrote down that you have openly talk about are deep learning specialization, data scientist toolbox, game theory. What do you like about online learning? Maybe specifically Coursera. I'm sure you use other tools as well, but give, me, give us an idea of why you do this and uh, you know, what advantages or what benefits do you see from it? So for one thing, uh, I could do things at my own pace, right? So I recently finished a deep learning certification and uh, that was my Friday night time after the family goes, finishes dinner and we all hang around and then they go to bed. I would put in like a couple of hours on a Friday night and Saturday night and knock through that. Find these windows of opportunity where I do believe that the learning doesn't stop. You just can't learn and then start drawing dividends rest of your life. So you have to constantly, especially the speed at which the technology is evolving, the speed at which supply chain space is evolving, it is important for one to stay in tune. 
The thing I like about Coursera in general, what I refer to as the MOOC platforms, right? The massively open online curriculums. Wait, wait, wait. Is that is that your acronym or is that like a no. generally accepted acronym? Do a search on MOOC, M-O-O-C. Okay, because in my world, a MOOC, M-O-O-K, was an idiot. <laughs> we <laughs> no, would call people MOOCs. It's M-O-O-C, <laughs> MOOC. I see that, yeah. <laughs> the thing I like about these platforms is... Uh, they make you exactly opposite of the MOOC that you're talking about, right? <laughs> make you at least feel smarter, but there are some fantastic content that is very accessible any part of the world, right? In fact, I very much encourage people in my network to dabble in some coursework and uh, supplement that with on-the-job learnings. Listen, before, no, that is awesome. But by the way, since we're on this topic, there it is, MOOC. M-O-O-K. A stupid or incompetent. It's not even (laughs) it's not even a slang term. Well, I guess it's a slang term, but yeah. So when you said it's a MOOC, I'm like, what do you mean? It's stupid. (laughs) It threw me off. (laughs) You taught me something new and I taught you something new. How about that? (laughs) Exactly right. Madhav, man, I appreciate you joining us today on the show. Thanks for sharing your thirst for knowledge the ability to write, the fact that you've seen alligators just running around in the parking lot, <laughs> as well as some of the things you're working on global supply chain field. I think it's one of those things where a lot of people, maybe they don't think about, you know, like uh, on a career path, possibly when you go to school, it's, it's not, you know, it's not, I don't think a lot of kids think about it, but it's, it's critical. It's essential. And as you suggested, the problems in it never stop. So there's always a problem to solve. Sounds like you're going to be busy for a long time. I will be. And by the way, here's a tidbit, right? The enrollments in supply chain programs have gone up now. Okay. Even when you look at business school, finance used to be the cool thing. And now more and more people are leaning towards supply chain is what I'm hearing. So that's very encouraging to me. Well, that's good to know. And by the way, I, I, I mess with my wife all the time because she's an accountant. Accounting enrollments continue to fall because it's like the least sexy, I guess, professional occupation you can have. Maybe it's all the supply chain, gravity towards supply chain. That's a lot of math and numbers. That's what I'm saying. All the accounts like, man, I'd rather just work in supply chain. At least I'm, you know, doing like solving problems. I'm just answering to, you know, cash flow statements. That's annoying. But how about supply chain accounting, right? Get me out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Pass. That's for you, man. That's for you. <laughs> Madhav, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. I hope you had a good time. Thanks for sharing all of your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Albert. 